of George Floyd in police custody. Protests and marches are already planned this year for the holiday in many states. Weather in Washington, D.C. right now is 87 degrees and cloudy. In New York City, 73 degrees and cloudy. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Chris Bangert-Rounds. Thanks for listening. Okay, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. It is now 5 p.m. Stay tuned for Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons coming up. Welcome to Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and thank you for staying with WBAI this afternoon. You had just been listening to a uh, special program with Christine Blasdale. I hope you're doing well. I hope all of our listeners are doing well. I know that if you're like me, if you follow the news each day, you're wondering when and if your life is going to get back to normal or as normal as possible in this quote-unquote new normal, it can really seem to be a challenge. I woke up today to the news about these, and this is an odd one to bring up, these deadly mosquitoes that I've been obsessing about now all day uh, that are apparently in the Northeast. I'm not even going to go into many details about them. I'm already stressed enough about the murder hornets we have heard about. And then we're amid the fact that New York City is now experiencing the first phase of reopening. But if you're reading stories, you're seeing that there are a number of cases that are kind of ticking up going upwards in some of the regions that already had begun reopening. We talk about a second phase uh, or a second wave, and according to experts, they're saying this is still amid, we're still amid that first phase in a lot of these regions. The numbers are starting to go up. You think about how the total death toll has now surpassed 2 million people here. I mean, that's larger than entire cities. You think of it's larger than Philadelphia or larger than entire states like Nebraska. So we've been at this. I mean, many of us are working from home. We've been doing this for weeks. Now it's months. Uh, and, you know, I just wanted to take a moment and also praise the dedicated frontline workers, the essential workers that we all applaud for, that Reggie mentions and reminds us of that every night we open our windows and we applaud and we bang on, uh, you know, pots and pans and people play their instruments. You know, uh, we want to thank the essential workers, and the frontline workers who have been putting their lives at risk. I want to commend them for that. They've been doing this for months now. Two million total cases. I apologize. I said two million deaths. I meant two million cases. Sorry about that. I do want to correct myself. The onset of warmer weather, this time of year when many of us, you know, look to take it a little easier or go out on vacation or visit our parks and playgrounds and pools or go to the beach. It's upon us. But, you know, I worry and probably many of you also worry about how much how much COVID-19 still exists in the world around us and in our city. So as we adjust to this new life and we wonder how much longer this is going to go on, you know, we some of us are letting our guards down a bit. Some of us are taking more chances. Uh, I'm just encouraging you to as much as possible to think about not only your own health, but the health and the lives of your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, you know, a, a, by the actions that you decide to take. So with that, I want to go to some of our news, uh, news updates today uh, and, and say that in a few minutes, we're going to be able to talk with uh, a special guest, Brittany Saunders, the Deputy Commissioner for Strategic Initiatives at the New York City Commission on Human Rights. And then in the second half hour, uh, Assembly Member Walter Mosley, who will talk about uh, the legislative actions being taken up in Albany this week. There's been quite a flurry of them, ones that I do want you to hear about, because amid the demonstrations that have been taking place across our country uh, since late May in the wake of the death of George Floyd, uh, a number of local city, state elected officials here in New York have been concerned about criminal justice reforms and about addressing issues that are raised by the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. So we're going to talk with Walter Mosley about that. So just a little uh, news updates first, and then Reggie is going to let me know when we have our first guest ready, and then I'll go to our first guest. So 
confirmed coronavirus cases in our country have now passed, as I noted and corrected myself, 2 million. And that's driven in part by surges that we're seeing in states now like Arkansas, Florida, uh, Nevada, and South Carolina. And this is happening after governors across the nation took steps to reopen their economies. Coronavirus infections were rising in 21 states uh, as of today, and more than a dozen states have seen confirmed cases uh, increase just in the past week and at a faster pace than a week earlier. More than 113,000 people have died in the country from coronavirus. I'm correcting myself again. On Wednesday, Texas, by the way, had set a record for hospitalizations. That increased 42% in the state since Memorial Day, and that's for the third consecutive day. We also, when it comes to the economy, and I'll give uh, more news uh, reports later on in the show, but when it comes to the economy, a major development in the stock market today. Stocks dropped sharply, the most sizable drop since the middle of March. And this is amid a grim economic forecast and an uptick in those coronavirus cases that I mentioned. Meanwhile, I give you this every week when we get it. The Federal Labor Department said that one and a half millions, one and a half million Americans filed new state unemployment claims last week. That is the lowest number since the pandemic shut down much of the economy in March, but it is still far above normal levels. So as much as I'm talking about the pandemic, I do want to move over to what has been happening in our city and across our country uh, as far as the demonstrations and uh, calls for police reforms and for criminal justice reforms. Uh, we are still hearing about a number of demonstrations across our country. Uh, we are, uh, with the curfew being lifted, there was a report this afternoon that since the curfew was lifted here in the city, we are not hearing about any violent demonstrations or, or looting, but I'm so sure there are still a number uh, of serious concerns. There's also, and this is going to lead into my first guest, there's also been several reports that have come out recently uh, regarding how public, American public opinion on race and criminal justice issues have been moving steadily towards the left since the first protests ignited back uh, uh, in, um, on May 25th. And that, uh, let's see, this firm called Civics, an online survey research firm, uh, had noted that support for Black Lives Matter increased as nearly as much as it had over the previous two years, just since May 25th. One piece of data that you should consider by a 28-point margin, a majority of American voter support for the movement uh, was up by 28 points. Uh, that's up from a 17-point margin before the, this recent wave of protests. So with that, I want to go to what happened more locally this week. You might not have heard, but I read this uh, on, an, uh, on an online outlet, news outlet called The City, uh, that the New York City Commission on Human Rights had put out a report that illustrates how anti-black racism is present in almost every facet of New York City life. This is a comprehensive document, a 74-page document that I hope you will read after you listen to this next segment. I mean, for some, it may not hold many surprises, particularly as our city and country and globe witness these historic calls for change. But for many others, it might be. You might not realize how systemic this is. So with that, let me get to my first guest today, Brittany Saunders, the Deputy Commissioner for Strategic Initiatives at the New York City Commission on Human Rights. Welcome to WBAI. Thank you so much, Jeff. So first, for anyone who is not familiar with the commission, can you just talk a bit about what the commission does? Absolutely. Um, so the commission is a New York City agency, and our mission is to educate New Yorkers about their rights and their obligations under the New York City human rights law, um, and also to um, to enforce that New York City human rights law. Um, so the human rights law that applies to folks in the five boroughs here is very robust, very broad and comprehensive. It includes a lot of different areas of protection, um, including race and color, gender, sexual orientation, many others, um, and also covers um, employment, housing, 
uh, places of public accommodation, um, as well as something called bias-based profiling um, by law enforcement, and something called discriminatory harassment, which is harassment that occurs kind of in streets or in public places and instances in which people are targeted on the basis of race for such harassment. Um, and so we uh, encourage folks to learn more about us by visiting our website, which is nyc.gov forward slash human rights, or to um, call us if they need to report an experience of discrimination. And that number is 212-416-0197. And uh, I do want to uh, reference the name of the report, because if they're going to go to the website now, you should look for the new report, Black New Yorkers on their experiences with anti-Black racism. But this is not the first... Uh, uh, report of its kind that you've done. You've also looked at the other communities. Can you talk a little about that? Absolutely. So in June of uh, 2017, we released a report on the experiences of Muslim, Arab, South Asian, Jewish, and Sikh New Yorkers um, with harassment and discrimination. Um, and that was based on a, a survey that we did with folks um, across the city. Um, we also, in spring of 2018, released a report um, on the experiences of New Yorkers with pregnancy, I'm sorry, with um, sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, and so that's um, another report that we, that we produced to just kind of elevate and focus the attention of, you know, various actors in New York on the experiences of, um, of folks in the city with uh, harassment and discrimination. So let's get to the report and its focus on anti-black racism. Talk a little about the areas that you looked at and what research was involved, what the process was like for you to compile this report. Sure, sure. So we wanted to look at anti-black racism, obviously because of New York's sizable black population and, and really diverse and rich black communities, um, but also because it's a phenomenon that's been really normalized. So. It's something that we felt needed um, and merited um, some significant attention. And so the way we went about that um, was that we worked with a research group called um, Strength in Numbers Research Group and a um, wonderful black researcher who was working with them um, to do a qualitative research project. We did 19 focus groups um, with about 190 black New Yorkers. Those are Afro-Caribbean Afro folks, African-American folks, um, African-immigrant folks, um, Afro-Latinx people and anyone else who identified as um, being black or being of African ancestry. Um, and we, you know, convened those focus groups. We also did some interviews with um, leaders in community-based organizations um, who work in black communities across the city um, to help us kind of inform the structure of the project. We asked folks to let us know about their experiences with racism across all different areas of life and at all different levels. So we got back um, a lot of information about folks' interpersonal uh, interactions, but we also got a lot of information about their interactions with institutions in the city, whether those were city government agencies or whether they were private entities. Um, and then also a lot of information and observations about kind of structural forms of racism as well. Um, and so we gathered that information. We also did a lot of additional research um, around the history of anti-black racism in the city of New York because we really wanted to place the experiences that people were having in the historical context. Um, and then we, um, we pulled all of that together um, and, and released it um, earlier this week um, in order to you know, inform our, our work, but also to inform the work of our colleagues in government, our colleagues in the nonprofit sector, colleagues in the philanthropic circles, um, about how we can best address, hopefully, this problem more effectively moving forward. And, I mean, the report clearly points out uh, early on that much of the growing concern about anti-black racism is due to the national political climate. Can you talk a little about that? Sure. You know, at the time um, when we conceptualized the report, um, there were just, you know, increasing signs. Like, obviously, anti-black racism has been a problem with a deep history both here in New York and in the city, I'm sorry, in the nation, um, across the board for a very long time. That's no surprise. But I think certainly having a president in the White House who is um, such a blatant uh, white supremacist and clearly has such close connections to an affinity for, you know, white nationalist rhetoric um, was disturbing. Um, and, you know, from Charlottesville to the speech that he gave, you know, not far from here, talking about the, you know, the need for and encouraging law enforcement officers to kind of take the gloves off and, 
and be more aggressive. Um, it was all really disturbing. Um, and so with that in mind, you know, we, we wanted to pull together this research to really shine a light on how that sort of rhetoric, as well as more kind of structural and institutional um, policies and practices, end up manifesting in the lived experiences of black New Yorkers and to really elevate those, those stories and those voices. So um, the report, talk a little about yeah. some, some of the findings. What were some of the alarming or even some of the not so surprising findings? Yeah, so um, I'll say, uh, I, I myself am a black woman. I'll say a lot of the things that I read as I looked at the research, they weren't necessarily surprising but they were deeply disturbing. I mean, kind of stepping back and looking at the research and looking at all the things that folks had to say to us about, you know, their experiences on the street, in their neighborhoods, their experiences in healthcare settings when trying to, you know, access care, their experiences um, when interacting with law enforcement, um, you know, their experiences in searching for housing, all of this, like looking at it and taking it together, it just, um, I really can't think of a better way to describe it than just kind of a, uh, sense of, of heaviness. Um, the term that we used in the report to just kind of describe overall uh, the picture of, of how this manifests in people's experiences was, you know, inescapable and emotionally taxing. Um, you know, one of the things, or the statements that one of our participants made that really stuck with me was, you know, you have to be a tactician to survive. And I think that really resonated with me, you know, the sense of constant vigilance, the sense that, you know, it's hard to, to really feel at ease. There are so many situations in which, you know, your own personal experience or your understanding of history conveys to you that there is a threat that you need to be mindful of. And so it's just that, that sense of, of anxiety. And then, of course, now in a situation in which, you know, black communities has been devastated by COVID-19 in a situation in which black communities are being, um, you know, stripped of wealth and of income because of the ensuing economic crisis. And in this situation in which, you know, um, police violence and other, you know, anti-black violence is rightfully getting, you know, a lot of attention, a lot of focus. It is just a lot, I think, um, for folks to carry. And I feel that, um, I feel that myself. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's one thing that's not necessarily surprising, but I think really comes through very clearly in the report and may very well be surprising for folks who don't have this, this experience themselves. Um, you know, I think the other thing that came through very clearly was that folks, you know, when we asked folks to prioritize, um, you know, the areas in which they were experiencing um, anti-black racism, law enforcement interactions were very clearly um, the kind of top category and people uh, talked about the impact of witnessing um, police violence, the experience of being targeted for vehicular stops or being targeted for, you know, police action related to, you know, low-level offenses or perceived low-level offenses. Um, the, the kind of uh, concerns around, like, heavy police presence at social activities um, that are, you know, intended for, you know, planned in black communities or in which black people are expect, expected to participate. Sorry. Um, the experience of policing in and around NYCHA development. And then, of course, um, the point around lack of accountability for police officers who engage in harassment, discrimination, or violence um, towards black people. Um, you know, some of the other things that folks shared um, that were particularly striking to me and also resonated with me were, you know, experiences that folks had in healthcare settings. So, um, you know, people, you know, observed barriers to care um, including cost of medication. They talked about how particularly important and impactful that was for um, black seniors, um, who again, we know have been so, so deeply affected by COVID-19 with high rates of infection and high rates of death. Um, they talked about, you know, the, the kind of clear resource disparities between hospitals and healthcare, um, healthcare uh, settings in their communities versus in wealthier communities. They talked about inadequate screening and diagnostic testing and the need to have, you know, a family member who maybe is part of the medical field or, you know, a friend who's part of the medical field advocate for them in order to get them the kind of health care that they deserve. And then sometimes even the negative repercussions that came with having to, you know, bringing someone in to advocate for you. So it's really um, very complex and, and far reaching. 
And I'm glad you mentioned that about healthcare because the report, and I've got just about a minute or two left, this report is very timely in part because it um, addresses the impact of COVID-19 on the city's black communities. And, and you know, we, and I've read a number of the accounts about how the, uh, the disproportionate uh, effect or impact on communities of color. Can you just talk a little about that? Yeah, so, you know, the report itself doesn't go into depth because it was prepared um, before mm-hmm. um, the COVID-19 outbreak. But that said, I think the conditions that it points to in healthcare, particularly, right, so these questions around, you know, what do people do or have to do in order to access care and what are the consequences of their not being able to access care are certainly like some of the conditions that I think help to explain um, what we're seeing in terms of the outcomes with respect to um Uh, infection rates and death rates um, in black communities in the city. And I also think that, like, you know, as I mentioned before, like we talked a little bit about the um, the the kind of heavy toll that um, being subjected to anti-black racism can take on people. And so I I just I can't help myself to just think about what it means now, like understanding that that was the baseline. What does it mean now for people to be um, to be experiencing that? but have it layered by all these other crises um, that we're encountering as well. And so I've just got about a minute left. I really want uh, to kind of drive this home to listeners who, uh, you know, might not normally read something like this. For the person not in government who reads this, who is not going to, you know, be aware of even some of the takeaways or the recommendations, what do you hope they take away from this report? What's the key message you hope people absorb? So I hope that, one, they take um, a look at some of the recommendations that we put together in the report, because we really did want to be um, solutions-focused, right, and to figure out what it is that we as a commission can do to um, address these conditions. And I hope they'll think about how they might interact with or connect with those um, those initiatives. I also hope that they'll take with them um, a sense of responsibility, no matter who they are, for trying to address these issues, for trying to um, make sure that they are, you know, if they're someone who has considerable privilege, making sure that they use their privilege to, you know, advance these issues, to support other people who are advancing these issues. Um, And I think, you know, perhaps one of the most um, inspiring thing about what we've seen about the kind of sustained protests over the last few weeks is the degree to which, you know, black people who've been fighting for these um, against anti-black racism for so long have been joined by other allies. And I think maybe the take-home point is the need for folks to kind of keep that energy, like keep that up, you know, stay focused, continue to, you know, support these causes, continue to think about how you can use your privilege and your power to, um, to fight anti-black racism, no matter how it is that you're positioned. And once again, remind our listeners where they can go to read this report. That's right. They can go to our website, which is nyc.gov slash human rights. Brittany Saunders, Deputy Commissioner for Strategic Initiatives at the New York City Commission on Human Rights. Thanks so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you so much, Jeff. Take care. Thank you. So you've been listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I was just talking to the Deputy Commissioner from the New York City uh, Commission on Human Rights. This is a really comprehensive report. Uh, I also do want to thank uh, for highlighting this issue earlier this week, which is where I discovered that this report existed uh, uh, the reporter from the city, S.A. Alumese, uh, who had covered this and detailed many of its findings. This is a great, inc- incredible uh, uh, news outlet called The City that you should uh, look up if you get an opportunity. So uh, in talking about the coronavirus, you know, each week I give you the numbers. Hopefully I get them correct. And I want to thank Reggie for flagging, uh, you know, that I needed to make sure I was correct today. Um, but, you know, we know many of of the people in our lives are impacted in one way or the other. And, you know, and it's affecting every sector in, in the city and in this world. Uh, my WBAI colleague, Celeste Katz-Marston, has been speaking with a number of people from all walks of life in New York City about how the coronavirus has impacted them. 
and someone who we've crossed paths with a number of times throughout our careers as journalists uh, is Nidia Velasquez, Congresswoman who you may know. Um, she's been in Congress for a number of years. She announced uh, in late March that she was in quarantine after contracting symptoms from the coronavirus. She announced it in a tweet, and she talked with our Celeste Katz-Marston just a few days ago about what this experience was like. And so now, Reggie, if you've got a moment, please let's share that, uh, that interview. For WBAI New York, I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. The COVID-19 pandemic has affected thousands of New Yorkers. That includes Congresswoman Nydia Velasquez. She became gravely ill earlier this year and is still dealing with the aftershocks of the virus. Velasquez, a Democrat who represents parts of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens, and serves on the House Financial Services Committee, spoke to WBAI about the personal and wider impacts of the virus, economic uncertainty, and the fight for greater racial equality that is sweeping the country. What has been your experience personally so far in this pandemic with, with COVID-19? Well, I personally uh, was uh, stricken by the uh, virus. I came down with uh, excruciating pain and fever. Then the next morning, I called my doctor and I told him that I couldn't smell and I didn't have any, any taste. My temperature was close to 100. And uh, he said, I believe you have coronavirus. You need to isolate yourself. And um, from that point on, I spent 14 days uh, in, in isolation, uh, dealing with the pain in my muscles, in my joints, uh, in my skin. I couldn't touch my skin. It was excruciating. So now that you're looking out at the city and you're seeing we're going to start going back to work, uh, people are going to start being out, also people out there protesting and trying to pursue a more equal society. What do you think about just seeing all these things happening at once? It is important for us to continue to do what we are doing, and that is to take every step to protect ourselves. Uh, to wear masks, but most importantly is testing because testing gives us a snapshot as to where we are, if there are any hot spots so that the city and the state could move resources and, and tackle the issue. Uh, so I've been supporting and advocating for more resources to the, to the different state. Like when we passed legislation, the HEROES Act, um, that will put a lot of money for testing, tracing, and containment. And this is linked to the economy. If we don't have certainty, uh, the heart of the, our economy is consumer spending. If consumers are not confident that we have been able to contain the virus, it doesn't matter if we say that we are going to reopen and that the restaurants will be open. If those consumers do not feel safe, they will not walk through those doors. And uh, that is why it's so important that we have a national strategy. And of course, right now, the type of strategy that has been implemented is more locally based or state based rather than having a national strategy. What do you feel uh is the effect of what we are seeing come out of the White House and out of Washington in terms of dealing with coronavirus? 110,000 people have lost their lives. I, I, I resent and I am very critical that the administration had information that didn't share with members of Congress and that we didn't move uh, fast enough that we wasted two weeks, two precious weeks. The scientists are telling us that at least 33,000 people, 30,000 people will have saved their lives if we have moved with expeditiously and, and we didn't do that. How do you feel about the, the state response and the, the city response as well? One of the issues that it exposed, where there, there were two issues that, that the pandemic exposed 
here in New York, but also nationally. And that is uh, the problem with the nursing homes. And, and so uh, the lack of resources, of manpower, the lack, the lack of capacity to deal with a, a pandemic among seniors in nursing homes produce a lot of debt. And, and, and that was a, a real issue that we need to address. We need to deal with the lack of infrastructure uh, in those facilities because we have to make sure that the infrastructure is put into um, in place because we don't know what is gonna happen in the fall. We don't know if we're gonna be here again and that is why it's so important. The other issue that was exposed during the pandemic is the disparity that exists in our healthcare system and economic system. So those most impacted were brown and black people. They, they died at a higher rate. And two, in terms of the economy, they were the one losing their job because they cannot, uh, they have to show up. They got, and, and, and therefore they were more vulnerable. There are a lot of people right now who uh, want to be out there, want to be out in public, want to be out in the streets, in the parks, um, talking about racial equality, talking about justice. But at the same time, obviously, all the concerns that you discussed about coronavirus still exist. I have participated in, in various uh, protests. So I've been there and I've been watching very uh, conscious about using protective gear, whether it's the mask, whether it's shield face, uh, you know, covering your entire face uh, and, um, and the use of hand sanitizer. I saw that. I saw that young people, old people, all kinds of people were, were in masks. So uh, in that sense, I had peace of mind. But let me just say this, uh, uh, Celeste. First, let me say that one thing that's so notable, uh, that was so notable about the protest in New York and maybe around the nation is seeing people of all ages and backgrounds risking their health during this pandemic because they wanted to speak out about racial injustice and police abuse. So this speaks to their passion, but I think it's also further evidence that we have reached an inflection point on these issues. This time there truly is widespread outrage and a real demand for tangible reform. So. I, I, I truly believe that this time is different. The whole nation watched in shock the killing of George Floyd in real time. That never happened before. I just cannot bring myself uh, to watch that on, on, on television. It was just so, it, it really rocked uh, the, 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 the conscience of our nation. And I believe that people this time, at this moment, are resolved that we must demand transparency, accountability, and that we bring reform when it comes to police brutality. And then what do you say to people who say, well, we should defund the police department? I hope that we take our time to do a thorough assessment as to what a police department should look like, what is the main mission of the police department, and, 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 and go from there. But as I said before, uh, the police department should not be in the business of using money and uh, spending money to buy military equipment and military arms. That is not what the police department uh, should be doing. And, and, and I hope that, yeah, when we say defund, well, take that type of money away and reinvest it in our public school system. We have 5,000 police officers working in our public school system. What a message does that send 
to our children. So we have to reassess all that. Nydia Velasquez represents New York in Congress. For WBAI New York, I'm Celeste Katzmarston. Was our Celeste Katz Marston, WBAI correspondent, continuing her conversations with many New Yorkers, people you've heard from, heard of before, people you haven't heard of, and how they've been impacted by the coronavirus. You've been listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I'm going to get right to uh, my next guest who I mentioned earlier in the show. New York State Assembly member Walter Mosley. He represents the 57th Assembly District that encompasses the Brooklyn neighborhoods of Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, Prospect Heights, and parts of Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights. And uh, this he's represented since he was elected in 2012. During his tenure, he's worked to pass crucial legislation to protect New Yorkers from, from unscrupulous landlords, and he's furthered criminal justice reforms, which we're going to talk about today. He's also been an outspoken critic of many of the current rent laws that have caused the housing crisis that exists today in the city. And he also serves as co-chair of the Black, Puerto Rican, Hispanic, and Asian Legislative Caucus. Uh, Assemblyman Mosley, welcome to WBAI. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity. I'm going to get to the tough topics, but I've been itching to ask you the personal question. I worked with your mother for a number of years at the city controller's <laughs> office. How is she doing? Mom is great. I want to thank you for asking about her. I check in on her daily. Uh, you know, she's, she's a fire plug, so there's aren't, there aren't too many things that are going to keep her uh, down or keep her out of the streets. But uh, this coronavirus um, has curtailed her activities, but she's healthy. Great. That's Thank wonderful. You, no problem. That's wonderful to hear. Please convey my best to her. I will, so, definitely. So uh, a lot of, of action in Albany this week. The demonstrations have mobilized the public behind the cause of police reform. There's been swift action in the last two weeks, uh, in, incredible action this week. Can you talk a little about the process and the progress you've made in Albany this week? Well, the process... Uh, you got to give credit to uh, many of my colleagues who have introduced, I would say, 99% of the legislation over over a 10-year period. Um, but I think with served as the catalyst, or what served to ignite this agenda to come about this over this past week was obviously the young people, uh, people of all races, old, young, black, white, straight, gay. Uh, upstate, downstate, who, through their actions in the streets, uh, led to us putting together this legislative agenda. And as you know, uh, things that happen in Albany don't happen nearly as fast than when we know when people are in the streets uh, uh, voicing their concern at the level that they, they've never voiced in some period in time. So uh, this is a uh, it was a long process, but yet again, within that long process, it was a very short process, putting together the agenda, getting it to the floor, having the mayor, uh, the governor at the time of that uh, process saying that whatever bills come before him, he was going to sign, getting it out of committee, getting it to the floor, debating it, voting on it, and then moving them along uh, to the, our colleagues in the Senate. And you are part of a working group that identified the pieces of legislation that could move forward, but also those that might have to be tabled for now. How easy were those decisions and which ones were put on hold for now? Well, it, it, it was it was difficult because we have a lot of uh, tremendous and progressive bills from uh, sol ending solitary confinement, a halt bill to less is more, which uh, reforms our parole system. Um, to uh, passing the uh, Cannabis Regulation and Taxation Act. Uh, so we wanted to focus in on police conduct, uh, police misconduct, and there were some bills, package, packages of bills that we had to kind of narrow down that, 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 that talking point to fit the bills that we're going to produce. Uh, so we, we passed this package of over 10 uh, pieces of legislative items. Most of them had, or were two-way agreements. Um, or there were three-way agreements between us uh, in the Senate, in the Senate, the Assembly, and in the, the uh, governor's uh, office. So we understand that this was just the first of many steps to take place because we want to have prison reform and correction reform. We want to have parole reform. We want to pass uh, the Cannabis Regulation and Taxation Act because we know people who are 
who are making billions of dollars in this industry, yet we still have young people being stopped in our streets for, for possessing uh, a, 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 a small portions of marijuana for their personal consumption. So we understand that there's still a disparity when it comes to uh, how we treat black and brown uh, bodies uh, in our criminal justice system. Uh, so we know that this is the first of many steps, I, we believe, to come uh, in the very near future. One piece of legislation that is now among those that are waiting for the governor's signature is, is one that would prohibit chokeholds by officers, what's called the Eric Garner Anti-Chokehold Act. How historic or monumental of a moment is this? Well, when you consider that the federal government has uh, their version of, of, of our bill uh, coming out of the House with Congressman Jeffries and Congress Council Member Landers, uh, 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 Landsman has his bill in the city council, the fact that we were able to not only introduce our bill first, I introduced this bill back in 2015 uh, after meeting uh, uh, Ms. Gwen Carr, uh, Eric Garner's mom in Washington, D.C., and shortly after uh, the incident and then introducing it in January 2015, and then subsequently reintroducing it last year with Senator Brian Benjamin, who was our, our, our prime sponsor in the Senate, uh, we understood that uh, it would have to take a, a moment in time for us to act upon this bill, because this bill uh, was something that was kind of dormant for us. And it was something that obviously I was continuing to push through our codes committee, which is kind of like our criminal justice, uh, de facto criminal justice committee. But we understood that a moment in time like this, unfortunately, would probably be the precipice for us to put this before the leadership, to get it into the agenda of the committee, and to get it ultimately to our colleagues to vote on it. So it was a long journey, but not nearly as long as the suffering of people like Anthony Baez and, and Eric Garner and obviously people uh, 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 of, of similar elk who uh, had been um, uh, you know, you know, accosted or lost their lives because of uh, police, police misconduct and brutalization. So, um, you know, in the larger scope of things, it wasn't a long journey, but we're, we're happy to see that the bill is on the governor's desk to be signed in the very near future. And uh, among the pieces of legislation that uh, are still under consideration but not uh, being prioritized right now, I believe, uh, if I have this correct, hold on, wait, one. The uh, making false 911 calls, is that one that is moving forward now or is that one that's on hold now? Because that Amy Cooper video just sticks with me when I ask that question. Right. No, we did we did pass that out of the Assembly, and I right. believe we passed it out of the uh, Senate, um, and uh, it's waiting on the governor to sign. Um, you know, that, that video really speaks to such a deeper, a deeper conversation as to how people feel like they're privileged can be weaponized, and that something like 911, which we all use to uh, maintain safety as well as to call for help, can be uh, weaponized in the criminalization of black and brown skin. Uh, so that's it's, it's a real deep conversation on so many levels, but we're so proud to have attached uh, Amy Cooper's name to this um, uh, transformative piece of legislation, which we hope will curtail this activity. I don't think it will prevent people from doing it. Obviously, you can't uh, legislate morality, but at the same time, we understand that there are uh, punishments and repercussions towards your actions uh, going forward. And another measure is going to require police departments uh, to keep data, to compile data on the demographic breakdown of people who are charged with misdemeanors and violations. What do you hope to achieve by that? Yeah, this, the uh, STAT Act. Um, uh, many, uh, we believe that couple that with um, the 50A, repeal of 50A, you're going to be able to get a much broader picture as to how not only individual officers are conducting themselves and what type of patterns and practices they have in terms of their misconducts and misdeeds, uh, but then you're going to be able to get a, a much broader picture of the precinct, how the precinct is being managed or mismanaged by precinct commanders and higher-ups assigned to uh, provide the necessary compliance and oversight over their workforce and making sure that everybody is uh, performing their jobs at a level that is not only respectable, but that is transparent uh, and that is, uh, uh, you know, up to par to what we expect, regardless of where you live in the city of New York, whether you live in Harlem or whether you live in Clinton Hill or whether you live in East New York or whether you live uh, in, in, in South Bronx. Uh, so we believe that those two bills coupled together will give everyone 
the ability to have access to information in real time to get a, a really broad scope as to how precincts are really being run and not just rely upon um, uh, arrest statistics to justify uh, how people are doing their job uh, one way or the other. What are you hearing about when the governor might sign these measures? Well, uh, you know what? Uh, we have not, I have not heard anything about when he's going to sign them, but I know that he was very clear and explicit uh, the days leading up to our session um, before we uh, officially passed these bills that he was signing them immediately. So we're looking for these bills to be signed within the next uh, uh, day or two. Um, we know that we'll probably be back in Albany uh, either late later this month or early next month um, to uh, deal with uh, the HEROES Act and, and what federal provisions we'll be getting uh, from that uh, from that next uh, federal stimulus uh, package. But uh, we definitely believe that it will be signed well before that. And I'm going to switch gears in just a moment because you mentioned the stimulus package. But, uh, you know, I know for having watched a number of bill signings before how emotional these moments can be for people who've pushed for legislation for years. What will that moment be like for you when the governor signs these measures into law? Uh, I think it'll be bittersweet because you never want to, you know, attach a name to a piece of legislation when that name and that person is no longer with with us. Um, that person was a father. Uh, 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 that person was a son. Uh, that person was a brother. Uh, that person was an uncle. Um, and, um, you know, you never want to have to have people pay the ultimate price for us to come up with legislation that we think is common sense and we think will add a level of um, responsibility and transparency that all of us as professionals should face, particularly those who uh, pledge an oath to uh, protect and serve at a level of uh, law enforcement uh, that is in our NYPD, as well as law enforcement throughout our state. So uh, it'll be bittersweet. It'll be um, ho hopefully something that we'll never have to face again. But if we do, uh, that there will be consequences that uh, far outweigh the current consequences that officers, particularly those in New York City, are facing now when they use uh, that particular illegal chokehold, uh, which is so illegal not only by this law but also in their administrative practices. But yet uh, they find themselves always uh, finding ways out to minimize the level of uh, punishment uh, that is incurred by officers. And that's why this law was, was, was needed and needed to be passed uh, a long time ago. But we're, we're grateful that it got passed earlier this week. So just switching gears on the last few minutes, I mean, regions across the state are starting to reopen. At the same time, we're seeing reports from across the country that some of the regions that have uh, partially or more fully reopened are seeing an uptick in coronavirus cases. Do you think we're opening, reopening too soon? How do you see this playing out here in the state? Well, I think, they, I, you know, I, I understand people want to reopen, particularly in our the northern portions and the Finger Lakes sections and the north region, where the density and population is not even comparable when you look about look at the downstate region and New York City region. Uh, but at the same time, I think the state needs to be far more clearer in terms of um, regulations, in terms of when people are opening, uh, what you need to be, what needs to be put in place in an effort to have a safe working environment. I know that I have a lot of constituents who are calling my office who are being, you know, telling us that their employer is telling them to sign these disclaimers. But uh, that that disclaimer does not absolve the, the level of culpability that an employer has to provide a safe environment to work in. So they need to be taking temperatures. They need to be logging in those temperatures of every uh, person who's working. They need to provide math. They need to have uh, 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 periodic cleaning procedures. Those are the things that, um, and they can be audited, but I don't think that everybody is going to be doing that, um, So, uh, particularly here in the city, uh, So uh, because that incurs a cost in and of itself. So, um, you know, it's clear that, you know, the state is, is chopping at the bit to open up to get revenue back in you know, order in terms of revenue that we've been losing over the past 100 plus days. But at the same time, we have to be very clear in terms of when we open up in the phase one, phase two, and subsequently, and so on and so on throughout the state, that we provide clear directives 
when it comes to our employers, whether they're service employers, whether they're professional uh, employ uh, employers, or any other type of uh, of work uh, force that's being opened up uh, within this, these uh, these subsequent phases. So uh, that's not clear, and that that needs to be improved upon. And when you're hearing from your constituents. How do they feel? Are they are they happy with the way that the governor and the mayor have handled this? Do they seem to favor the way one has handled it versus the other? Uh, I think they look to the governor for the most part because the directives are state directives that that uh, are superseding the, the local directives. Uh, for us, we we look to the state DOH Department of Health and State uh, Department of Labor uh, to look at their directives. Uh, they're the ones who are going to be doing the auditing. Um, so we, we, we tend to give out this information. I always tell my constituents, make sure that you log information in, whether you do it electronically or do it manually, so that if there ever comes a time where if you need or your family needs to check records as to how um, your employer was treating you and whether or not they were adhering to the, to the provisions that were set out by the state, uh, that will serve in your best interest when you're talking about culpability should you uh, find yourself getting sick and then subsequently not being able to work and being fired, um, but for the fact that your employer did not provide you with a safe working environment. So, you know, we're just trying to make our constituents be a little bit more proactive um, and not not depend upon their employer to be able to substantiate what they're doing, but to, to actually uh, uh, take down an information, log it in yourself so that you protect yourself as well as your family. And I know we've got just about a minute left. Um, you know, I never feel right focusing on campaigning when we have a pandemic and we have, you know, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the demonstrations right now, but you are seeking re-election right now. In the brief right. moments that we have, how do you see this election season playing out? Because, I mean, you uh, we only have a few more weeks before, well, I already sent in my absentee ballot, but we right. have a few more weeks before people go to the polls. Well, you know, I, I think that a lot of uh, our voters have already voted. They've, they've submitted their absentee ballot. Um, you know, obviously they're, they're doing what they need to do in terms of staying busy in a physical distant type of environment. So um, they're doing what they need to do, one, exercising their franchise by voting by and then two voting by absentee henceforth not exposing themselves or exposing board of election workers uh, that are starting to work now from the 13th to the 21st of early voting and then obviously on the 23rd during primary day so you know i think we'll you know my district has a pretty high voter turnout compared to other assembly districts throughout the state where we're usually in the top five so I think we'll have, uh, you know, a, a good showing, maybe not as much because of the fact that, you know, we are still going through a, 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 a pandemic in a state of emergency. But, um, you know, I think we've done our, our, our due diligence in terms of making sure that people are aware that there is still an election, even in the midst of a, a global pandemic, as, as well as uh, a, a, self, a man-made pandemic that uh, is trying to be resolved in our, in our state houses in our respective uh, uh, houses of legislature in D.C., Washington, and, and the City Hall. And Assembly Member Walter Mosley, how can people learn more about you and your work? Uh, they can go to Walter Mosley, M-O-S-L-E-Y dot N-Y-C, um, and that's where they can find out more about me, um, or they can Google me, and obviously they can uh, contact us on the government side at mosleyw.nyassembly.gov. So uh, I, I try to distinguish and delineate between the two um, because, uh, you know, that's just the proper thing to do and a professional thing to do. So, uh, Jeff, I thank you for this opportunity, and uh, I look forward to coming back on the show. Thanks so much for joining us today here in WBAI. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jeff. Be well. So got just a few minutes left. I do want to remind our listeners uh, before I close the show, I did not get enough time to say this, but I want to thank you again for tuning in because we really rely on you. We've relied on you for years. If you're sitting at home and you're listening to WBAI, not just my show, but other shows, if we bring you joy, if we bring you comfort, please just take a moment and, and, and contribute to our spring fundraising drive. It's incredibly important at this time to support non-corporate, non-commercial, progressive radio 
Uh, there are multiple ways you can do this. So if you've got a pen, just write this down. You can go onto our website at give to, that's the number two, wbai.org, give to wbai.org. We also have phone lines. You can call easily, 516-620-3602. Become a BAI buddy. That is what I am if you call that number, 516 620 3602. When you become a BAI buddy, you give a sustaining contribution. It just goes right on my credit card. Every month you can give five, 10. Most people give about 15 or $20 a month. Uh, it just right, you know, gets charged to your credit card and you continue to show your support. And there's one other way. If you're listening to us while you're walking around right now, listening to us streaming live on your phone, then take a moment and just text. Text WBAI to 41444. And then you just have to follow the prompts on your smartphones. I really appreciate your support at this time. The station appreciates your support. So before I close the show, I, I, you know, I've been paying attention a lot to the obituaries in the newspapers because it seems like every day I'm recognizing names. Some people I've known, um, you know, or they are friends or relatives uh, uh, of friends. Uh, and even neighbors, you know, and we're losing a lot of people to coronavirus. But at the same time, you know, I don't want to ignore the fact that there are other people who've been a part of our lives, maybe from afar, who've influenced us uh, that that we've lost. And uh, one that I had read about yesterday that actually was very moving uh, to me because of how much I had listened to her music in the 70s uh, was Bonnie Pointer. She was one of the founding siblings of the Pointer Sisters. I, I spent many a time during the 70s enjoying this group. Uh, her cause of death was not coronavirus. It was a heart attack. Um, she was an incredible songwriter. She was credited with some of the Pointer Sisters' best love tracks. And she had left the groups in the, in the 70s and signed, out with, uh, signed on with Motown, where she continued her hit. So tonight, as I close the show, Reggie is going to play you one of her songs that was one of my favorite songs. Take it away, Reggie. Sharon Salam speaks out for WBAI. We should be moving forward, collecting the funds that we need to make sure that our station is whole and that it can do its job as it has done for me in the past. 
When all of this stuff happened to me many, many years ago in 1989, I didn't get very many opportunities to speak out in regards to the wrong that was done to my son and the other boys in the Central Park Jogger case, as it was called at that time. Very few people stepped up. Yes, Like It Is was there. WBAI was there and a few others. Majority of those stations that let people like myself speak and tell them what was going on on the other side, those stations are gone. If we lose WBAI, where do we go to get our words out? Where do we go if you've been arrested unjustly? Where do you go if someone's taken your children unfairly? Where do you go to seek justice? We must keep this station alive. Alive. WBAI. This is listener-sponsored, locally-controlled WBAI New York. And what Sharon Salam said, I concur. We need to keep this station going. We've kept it going for over 60 years now. And I know this sounds like a cliche, but it's true. 